0: Love,
1: talk, radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. This is uh, Wednesday. It's February 22nd of 2012, and our guest tonight is Dr. David Rudy. He is the author of a book called the Becoming Alcoholic. It's a sociological study of uh, the affiliation with AA and uh, identity change. It's a really fascinating book. That I read a few years back and uh, then I've been rereading it recently uh, getting prepared for this interview. So before we start the show, I'm going to do a quick little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. From Safer Drinking to Reduced Drinking to Quitting Altogether, and our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon, and for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is uh, David Rudy. He's right here. I'm going to bring him on. Uh, David, how are you doing tonight? We're
0: pretty good. Looking forward to
1: chatting for a while. Very good. It's a fascinating book that I really recommend. Anyone with an interest in AA should read. It's not it's not a pro AA or an anti AA book so much as a sociological analysis, and it's very fascinating. And um, so, tell me a little bit about the identity change that takes place when people affiliate with Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: Well, when people affiliate from Alcoholics Anonymous, they go through a process
1: uh,
0: where they're active or drinking alcoholics, and they go through, uh, you know, uh, an affiliation process. And you know that, that uh, first step in that affiliation process, uh, and this fits right into AE ideology, is, is hitting bottom. And uh, so they, they admit that they've hit bottom, and uh, and that things are bad, and they need to do something about it. Uh, some people come to AA and they've already hit bottom, or believe that they've hit bottom. Other people learn, in fact, that they've hit bottom, and so it's a it, it's a sort of a learning experience. And um, uh, and as I said, when they when they first injury, they're active or uh, active drinkers uh, and many of those people through the process of affiliation began to take on a, a new identity um, which in AE ideology is, uh, is is recovering alcoholic and AE ideology emphasizes the recovering aspect as opposed to the recovered aspect uh, and uh, so this process of of identity change uh is is very similar to what you see in the literature on religious conversion uh, there's a number of journal articles I published after the book uh, with Larry cryle uh, talk about the relationship between religious conversion and identity change organizations and n a a in religious conversion uh you have a situation where Um, You know, a a Baptist could become a Mooney or a Catholic could become a Satanist or a Satanist could become a Catholic and and vice versa. And and what we find out in in identity change organizations is uh, there's a a master process that takes place and a master structure Uh, in the, the master process is basically taking on new reference or new uh, uh, new friends. And as a matter of fact, Laughlin and Stark in their study of the loonies define religious conversion as taking on the attitudes and opinions and beliefs of new friends. So what happens is uh, when when one moves on the street from having drinking friends or drinking buddies to one's friends now become AA members uh, or other recovering alcoholics, you see this change in in uh, uh, reference group or, or change in reference individuals. So it's nothing magical, generally speaking. It's, it's taking on a, a new sort of perspective. Uh, the master structure is pretty interesting as well, and, and this comes starts from the work of Wofford and Uh It's a notion of, of uh, encapsulation, and uh, uh, Larry Greil and I. And, and or to uh, uh, use a metaphor of social cocoons. Uh, Encapsulation uh, protects the incoming affiliate or the uh, potential religious convert. Uh, It it protects them from outside or competing influences. In the Laughlin and Stark case, they talk about physical encapsulation. So in the old days, the um, Moonies would uh, uh, have people come out from San Francisco uh, they'd get on a bus and they'd come out to the to the farm that was out in the county somewhere well once dropped off at the farm they were there for the weekend if not longer and so it provided a, a physical barrier it separated them from people who would discredit what they might be learning in this setting uh, Larry and I Again, develop the idea that all organizations don't have the luxury of doing things like physically separating people. And so we talk about other types of encapsulation, like social encapsulation, uh, which is uh, used in AA. Uh, in most AA groups, when a person gets um, fairly serious about the program, they may be challenged to the 30-30, 60-60, 30, or 90-90 or, and uh, the ninety ninety rule, for example, is to try to attend ninety meetings in ninety days. And so, when one is at a meeting, that protects one from the discrediting views of non A people in the outside world. Other organizations use uh, ideological encapsulation in the sense that they provide people with an ideology or a worldview that insulates or protects them. Uh, you know, from competing Jews in the outside world. So, again, to, to go back, identity change is characterized by changing reference groups or changing reference individuals. The individual takes on the opinions, the attitudes, the beliefs, and learns these things from, from basically new friends. And, secondly, it's characterized by some sort of encapsulation techniques, whether they're physical, social, or ideological, or, in fact, all three.
1: Um, That was a long answer to a short question. (laughs) That's okay. It's a a very interesting answer. Uh, In the book, you talk about some different types of alcoholic careers, about a pure alcoholic, a convinced alcoholic, a converted alcoholic, and a tangential alcoholic. And I'm going to ask you to expand on each of those, and we'll start with the pure alcoholic.
0: Well, what I do to set up uh, those four groups is set up a little typology, and I talk about drinking emphasis, and then I talk about time of alcoholic self-definition. So drinking emphasis can be high or low depending on how these people told their stories and their testimonials or when I interviewed them or had discussions with them. And time of alcoholic self-definition means the person regards self as having a problem or being an alcoholic. Before they get to AA, or after, or during the fact, the assumption would be that uh, a pure alcoholic um, would have high drinking emphasis and regard self as having a problem before approaching AA, and and so that's those are the two characteristics of that type. Uh, one would think that in an organization like AA, most people would come and they would view that they had a problem already. That's not necessarily the case. The majority of the category is the uh, convinced alcoholic, who uh, uh, who has high to medium drinking emphasis, may regard some problems but doesn't view, view self as alcoholic. But once learning AE ideology and hanging around with AE types, they define their drinking as alcoholic drinking. The converted alcoholic is in the same situation. They uh, believe that. That, uh, uh, that they, they have a problem, but in fact, there's more organizational pressure to convince these people that they have a problem, and so sometimes run a, you know, you might hear an AA member say another AA member, "Well, any drinking could be alcoholic drinking. It depends on you know, why you're drinking or how you're drinking, or uh, or they may provide some other sort of rationale that the, if you were drinking normally." You know, you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't be beating your wife or abusing your wife. Um, a tangential alcoholic has low drinking emphasis and regards self as uh, you know having having an issue or a problem. Uh, but they have low drinking emphasis. Well, why would they have an issue or a problem? In the years that I studied AA uh, in the field, uh, I saw some persons. Who fit this category? Who really could have qualified for uh, other types of, uh, of of identities? For example, some people may regard uh, their sexual orientation as a uh, as a problem, and rather than view self as homosexual, one could view self as alcoholic, and I refer to those as tangential alcoholics. Mental illness would be another sort of category. Uh, in the groups that I studied, uh, quite a few years back, uh, I estimated that somewhere around the ballpark, of ten or eleven percent of the people that I was aware of, I would classify as tangential alcoholics. Um, the career aspect, you know, these are these are uh, uh, different types of, of career paths. But uh, if I would, I'd like to elaborate on the career aspect a little bit more. Um, Please, please. When people think of careers, they think of occupational careers. But a career sociologically involves uh, an identity, uh, a, a behavior system or behavior pattern, Uh, and uh, and the world view. And, uh, you know, we could talk about sociology as a career, sociologists as a a particular type of career path. Well, people have different types of careers. You know, they've got uh, athletic careers. They've got recreational careers. They've got a range of different careers. And usually, you know, one's occupational career is one of the more dominant careers. But for some people, uh, one can conceptualize um, their uh, drug use uh, as a career path. And just like there are many ways into a career, uh, there are also many ways out of a career. Um, let's talk the into. Sometimes into is rational. Sometimes it's accidental. Um, Some people go to college because they know what they want to do. Some people go to college because their friends went to college. Some people go to college because they didn't know what else to do. Um, Some people plan on becoming a sociologist. Other people plan on being other things, but they get lousy grades or make choices, or who knows, their boyfriend or girlfriend becomes a sociology major, and so they go that direction. So there are many ways into... Uh, particular types of careers and uh, so it's it's easy to conceptualize uh drug use or uh alcohol use uh as a as a particular type of career now uh, just as there are many ways in the careers on the occupational sense also in the drug sense, but there's also many ways out of those careers so uh some people may get out of those careers. Uh, by going to AA or going to uh, uh, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a different type of treatment program, uh, you know, the cognitive behavioral treatment program, a whole range of, of, of different possibilities. Typically, it's easier to get into a career than just to get out of one. That's the bad news. On the, the other-, other hand, over the long haul, Particularly in the alcohol and drug literature, uh, the research data are fairly clear that the majority of the people, one time or another, were in alcohol or drug careers, and let's call these careers habituated behaviors, where they, you know, they they, they use for considerable periods of time, and, and, and for a good number of people, you know. Uh, you know uh, not only frequency but uh, uh but, but quite a dosage over the long haul the majority of those people seem to finally get it and some of them get it from treatment, some of them get it from spontaneous remission, some of them get it because of you know uh, drastic uh, you know life changes you know uh, a person has a death in the family or person goes through a divorce and all of a sudden life gets turned upside down and that can be for some people an, an impetus to uh to stop doing what they're doing so um on, on one hand if you listen to one of the contemporary uh, ideology about uh, alcoholism and about addiction in america there's this sort of uh ideology that conveys that uh uh, that these substances are so strong and so powerful that, you know, uh, people are hooked on them and are hooked on them forever. And that is the case for some people, but it is not the case for the majority of the people over the long haul. So there's a lot of um, intriguing aspects about uh, what we believe about alcoholism and what we believe about addiction and what we believe about drug use versus, uh, you know, what the, what the data tell us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a disconnect between the data and, uh, uh, and
1: the beliefs of American society. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true. Um, especially when you start watching some TV shows, I was watching breaking bad recently, um, which really, uh, it's a really good picture of what Americans believe about addiction. That's, that's not true. Um, but, uh, This leads us into another question that I'd like to ask you about um, because you talked about the way people learn to tell stories about their behaviors, in this case about their alcoholism and how a person that went to a psychoanalyst might learn to talk about an oral fixation, whereas a person that went to AA learns to talk about the disease. And could you expand on that idea?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, sociologically, Uh, treatment organizations or identity change organizations or uh, places where people come to uh, think about making changes. These uh, organizations can be uh, put under the umbrella of social control organizations. And all social control organizations have their own particular ideologies. And as you mentioned earlier, the psychiatrists may look at it one way and a psychologist another way and an A member a, a third way and and uh, there are a whole host of of uh, different uh, ideologies. Well these ideologies have an ideology or a, or a belief system about, you know, what's the nature of this substance, how do people become habituated to substance when they uh, when they start using the substance, you know, are they you know, do they have a disease? Do they have a behavioral problem? Do they? Have? So it depends on, you know, where you go. So there are essentially AA alcoholics and there are, uh, you know, psychiatric alcoholics and there's a range of, of, of different types depending on uh, these organizations. By the same token, there's a, a broader sort of ideology in the society so the society has these, these cultural beliefs about addiction and alcoholism. And uh, I noticed one of your other guests on an earlier show that was written extensively about this is Ms. Stan Peel. And, uh, you know, in, in, in this one book, The Meaning of Addiction, you know, what, what Peel was arguing is uh, these definitions and beliefs we have about addiction are what essentially constitute addiction addiction ideology and and it becomes self fulfilling prophecies and you know rather than uh, saying that you know addiction is characterized by a b c d, and e it's like no addiction is characterized by what we believe addiction to be characterized by and and uh there are a number of writers who claim that the the addictive model uh and the addiction ideology in in uh some ways uh, creates more problems than it solves uh, so some people would argue that maybe we should uh, uh talk about um uh, uh level of drug use. And problems associated with one's drug use and and then think of some sort of in, in the alcohol literature that refer, refer to that as a quantity frequency index uh which on one hand shows your quantity and frequency of uh, uh, of what you're drinking and how frequently, but then along with that quantity frequency index uh an index of problems and uh you know, in and room and Sisson and a number of other people have written in this area and and, and suggested in the tech, I think that was in the 70s, uh, about using the label problem uh, drinking and problem drinkers uh, as opposed to use, using the label uh, alcoholic or the label addict. Uh, so uh, again, the, the thing that's intriguing here is that uh, we, Create these belief systems, uh, and the belief systems uh, not only control the way we think about these things, but they also have bearing on the ways in which people who use the substances think about
1: their, uh, think about their addiction, or think about their issues. Okay. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, when you did your research. This was uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, you did not uh, you did not find many people who were mandated to AA from the courts at that time. And uh, since then, we've seen a lot of people court mandated to AA. So that gave us uh, two more categories that could be discussed. In terms of alcoholic typology, there was the intransigent and the falsely accused. And could you explain what those categories are and what they mean?
0: Well, falsely accused, or in, in the criminal literature, the first as is bum rap, is that people, you know, uh, objectively uh, do not. Uh, have a particular problem or a particular issue, uh, but they're given a bum rap or they're they're falsely accused and they're they're alleged to have this. And sometimes that happens uh, because, you know, there's an ideology, uh, better be safe than sorry. And I think sometimes people are are, are sort of, you know, well-intended. And uh, they think that well, maybe he or she doesn't have a problem, but certainly treatment can't hurt, and um, uh, and and we should you know uh, mandate them or force them to go to treatment. And and I think the 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 case where you see this uh, even more so contemporarily is uh, I do some consulting work in a couple different states on occasion and. And uh, I spent some time in, in middle schools and high schools. And uh, uh, well, it's been a long time since I was a student of those schools. I go into these schools now, and, you know, and, and occasionally I'm there when they're having a shakedown or they're having the police with the, the drug sniffing dogs come in. And uh, and if if alcohol or drugs are found in a student's locker uh different schools have different approaches, but in some schools there's an approach that the student is suspended and in some places a student can't get back into school unless a student goes to treatment. Now I'm not encouraging and saying happen alcohol or drugs in your locker, which is a is a good thing. But clearly what we do know is that an awful lot of people Including adolescents, uh, experiment or try or go through a phase where they do different things. And most of those people who do those things don't develop problems. They figure out that you know, uh, you know, how much I should drink or how much I should use, and what circumstances and what settings, and they learn to regulate their behavior. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Clearly, there's this sort of belief that well, this is the beginning of a serious problem. So I think somehow falsely accused are 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 falsely accused because better to be you know accused and perhaps we're wrong and treatment will teach you that you know that you could fall into this type of uh, of circumstance. On the other hand, if the student is suspended from school or let's assume expelled from school if the person, again, is estranged or isolated from their friends. And uh, 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 it seems to me that that sort of response can also precipitate additional problems uh, that may, in fact, make a circumstance that was only, uh, you know, experimental that can turn that circumstance into, you know, a more serious problem. Uh, it's, it's an intriguing and complex environment out there, and, uh, uh, and and as I said earlier, the beliefs about these environments and the beliefs about our. and um so in a in American society to to go back to alcohol more specifically, you've got uh the classic clash between uh wet drinking cultures and dry temperance cultures, and that conflict in and it of itself provides a structural environment that makes alcohol problems. Much more uh, frequent in a society uh, where you have uh, these conflicting cultures because the conflicting cultures uh, point to different ideologies and different views. You know, marijuana is okay, marijuana be legalized, marijuana, you know, uh, is a serious addictive drug. And what we're doing here is, and and can I say that? not in because one is seriously taking drug, but as, as a matter of fact, you know we we spread these uh, you know uh, uh, sort of extreme definitions to to try to scare the hell out of people, you know, by using that type of ideology, and people can figure out that. You know, this I, I'm not getting the right story here. What is the case? So I guess what I'm saying is, northern conflict is is uh, is a precipitating factor uh, that provides a fertile uh, bed for uh, there to be more drug problems and more alcohol problems uh, than a more consistent sort of approach. Uh, obviously, in a complex, multi ethnic, multi racial society, multi religious society, uh, you know, you're not going to have to incredible degree of consensus, but our drug policies and our drug rules are nowhere near consensus on evening. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, a lot of people think that, well, you know, treatment couldn't hurt, so, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Maya Zalovitz in Time recently was writing an article about exposing someone as just perhaps experiments a little with marijuana, putting them in treatment with lots of hardcore drug users, and they come out and they're ready to use more drugs than they were when they went in. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, uh, let, this is an older study, but I, let me just m- uh, mention this one study. Um, uh, James uh, Spradley, an anthropologist, I read a number of articles or books, but uh, one book he wrote, uh, I I believe in the late 60s, was You Owe Yourself a Drunk. And basically what he uh, argued was that uh, uh, the treatment that we were using in the uh, 50s and 60s uh, for public intoxication was uh, arresting people and throwing them in a drunk tank.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and and essentially and, and we no longer do that but essentially at, at that time frame he argued that look uh throwing people in the drug tank is meant to be a solution to a problem of uh, public drunkenness but rather than seeing it as a solution to a problem he saw it as something that created in fact more problems because this, the, the processing of people was so dehumanizing uh, and the conditions were so bad that when the person got out of the thirty-day uh, circumstance, that they owed themselves a drunk, and first thing they would do is go out, you know, back in, in drinking again. And I can't remember the length of time anymore. But I remember right. I, I met a, uh, a guy years and years back, and uh, when he uh, uh, when he told his story, he would say that he spent like uh, you know. Like Two and a half years of his life in jail in the installment plan, you know, 30 days at a time, and uh, uh, so uh, other treatments themselves. Uh, you know, when, when you when you experience something, or do something, and, it, and it's not it's not an easy circumstance to say, well, uh, this hurts everybody or this helps everybody. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what happens is you've got an individual going through a process of. Of treatment, or process of therapy, or a process of something, and some people respond one way, and other people respond a different way. And uh, uh, so by the same token, if you if you learn that you're an addict and you believe in the addict ideology, uh, some people use that information to uh, become abstinent. Uh, some people use the information. That uh, I'm an addict. Well, if, if I'm an addict, I might as well get on with it. So they use it to justify or, or to continue their behavior. But uh, treatment in and of itself uh, is is not neutral. Um, and, and likewise, you know, presenting oneself to treatment or being forced into treatment, you know, you you you, you rarely find a social control agency that says, uh, No, you're fine. You don't have any issues. Uh, go home and get out of here and go, go do something else. You know, what you do is you find the, the organization based on organizational survival tries to recruit new members. Uh, if mm-hmm. It's a voluntary situation and if it's not, you know, they uh, you know, they make it paid or subsidized or billed based on the number of people in these uh, in these settings. And uh, that's where somewhere in the book I talked a little bit about problem hunting versus problem solving organizations and, and in my view, most organizations are problem problem hunting organizations. So they they bag whatever they can bag. And that's being a little cynical, but I I think uh, uh, I think it's well placed.
1: Well, I do think that particularly these treatment centers that are charging thirty thousand dollars a month, sixty thousand dollars a month for everyone they get in, often they're looking to get everyone in possible.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and it's it's become uh you know the, the treatment enterprise is a is a big enterprise and uh and it's not unlike you know uh, many other organizations and uh, uh with with different groups of people having different interests and you know and competing interests and um, uh you know, with, with wars between treatment professionals on whether, you know, they they should be certified or licensed or have this training or um you know, versus whether they should have street training or you know, share the problem in question.
1: There's a lot of interesting dynamics in the in in, in the treatment industry. I think it is. I think it's a fascinating question. Well, we're about out of time here, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. David Rudy.
0: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, and it gives me time to sort of look back and reflect on a few things, and and, uh, and, and I hope I didn't sound too much like a retired prof.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, you covered a lot of fascinating ground. I'm very happy that uh, you are our guest tonight. Well, and listen, take care, Ken. Okay, thank you. The book is called Becoming Alcoholic. You can order it from Amazon. And uh, we're going to close up the show now, Nick. Uh, tomorrow we have our regularly scheduled show, and our first guest will be Bart Major, who is from St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction in the Bronx. And our second guest will be Candy Lightner, who is the founder of Mad and who has uh, moved on to do other things to combat drunk driving, including she's working with the breathalyzer ignition interlock, and we're going to look forward to hearing her story. So thank you, everyone, and good night.
0: Good night.